Chapter Four of the Millionaire Baby. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Millionaire Baby by Anna K. Green. Chapter Four. Chalk Marks. My next move was toward the bungalow. Those chalk marks still struck me as being worthy of investigation, and not only they, but the bungalow itself. That certainly merited a much closer inspection than I had been able to give it under Miss Graham's eye. It was not quite a new place to me, nor was I so ignorant of its history, and it had a history as I had appeared to be in my conversation with Miss Graham. Originally it had been a stabling place for horses, and tradition said that it had once harbored for a week the horse of General Washington. This was when the house on the knoll above had been the seat and home of one of our most famous revolutionary generals. Later, as the trees grew up around this building, it attracted the attention of a new owner, William Ocumpa, the first of that name to inhabit Homewood, and he, being a man of reserved manners and very studious habits, turned it into what we would now call, as Miss Graham did, a den, but which he styled a pavilion, and used it as a sort of study or reading-room. His son, who inherited it, Judge Philo Ocumpa, grandfather of the present Philo, was as studious as his father, but preferred to read and write in the quaint old library up at the house, famous for its wide glass doors opening onto the lawn, and its magnificent view of the Hudson. His desk, which many remember, it has a place in the present house, I believe, was so located that for forty years or more he had this prospect ever before him, a prospect which included the site of his own pavilion, around which, for no cause apparent to his contemporaries, he had caused a high wall to be built, effectually shutting in both trees and building. This wall has since been removed, but I have often heard it spoken of, and always with a certain air of mystery, possibly because, as I have said, there seems no good reason for its erection, the place holding no treasure, and the gate standing always open, possibly because of its having been painted, in defiance of all harmony with everything about the place, a dazzling white, and possibly because it had not been raised till after the death of the judge's first wife, who, some have said, breathed her last within the precincts it enclosed. However that may be, there seems to be no doubt that this place exerted, very likely against his will, for he never visited it, a singular fascination over the secretive mind of this same upright but strangely taciturn ancestor of the Ocumpas. For during the forty years in which he wrote and read at this desk, the shutters guarding the door overlooking those decaying walls were never drawn to, or so the tradition runs, and when he died it was found that by a clause in his will, this pavilion, hut, or bungalow, all of which names it bore, at different stages of its existence, was recommended to the notice of his heirs, as an object which they were at liberty to leave in its present forsaken condition, though he did not exact this, but which was never, under any circumstances, or to serve any purpose, to be removed from its present site, or even to suffer any demolition save such as came with time, and the natural round of the seasons, to whose tender mercies he advised it to be left. In other words, it was to stand, and to stand unmolested, till it fell of its own accord, or was struck to the earth by lightning, 
a tragic alternative in the judgment of those who knew it for a structure of comparative insignificance, and one which, in the minds of many, and perhaps I may say in my own, appeared to point to some serious and unrevealed cause not unlinked with the almost forgotten death of that young wife to which I have just alluded. This was years ago, far back in the fifties, and his son, who was a minor at his death, grew up and assumed the natural proprietorship. The hut, it was nothing but a hut now, had remained untouched, a ruin no longer habitable. The spirit, as well as the letter of that particular clause in his father's will, had so far been literally obeyed. The walls being of stone had withstood decay, and still rose straight and firm, but the roof had begun to sag, and whatever of woodwork yet remained about it had rotted and fallen away, till the building was little more than a skeleton, with holes for its windows and an open gap for its door. As for the surrounding wall, it no longer stood out an incongruous landmark from its background of trees and shrubbery. Young shoots had started up and old branches developed, till brick and paint alike were almost concealed from view by a fresh girdle of greenery. And now comes the second mystery. Sometime after this latter Ocampa had attained his majority, his name was Edwin, and he was, as you already imagine, the father of the present Philo. He made an attempt, a daring one it was afterward called, to brighten this neglected spot and restore it to some sort of use, by giving a supper to his friends within its broken-down walls. This supper was no orgy, nor were the proprieties in any way transgressed by so harmless a festivity. Yet from this night a singular change was observed in this man. Pleasure no longer charmed him, and instead of repeating the experiment I have just described, he speedily evinced such an antipathy to the scene of his late revel, that only from the greatest necessity would he ever again visit that part of the grounds. What did it mean? What had occurred on that night of innocent enjoyment to disturb or alarm him? Had some note in his own conscience been struck by an act which, in his cooler moments, he may have looked upon as a species of sacrilege? Or had some whisper from the past reached him amid the feasting, the laughter and the jesting, to render these old walls henceforth intolerable to him? He never said, but whatever the cause of this sudden aversion, the effect was deep and promised to be long-lasting. For, one morning, not long after this event, a party of workmen was seen leaving these grounds at daybreak, and soon it was noised about that the massive brick partition had been put across the interior of the same pavilion, completely shutting off, for no reason that anyone could see some ten feet of what had been one long and undivided room. It was a strange enough act, but when a few days later it was followed by one equally mysterious, and they saw the encircling wall which had been so carefully raised by Judge Ocampa ruthlessly pulled down, and every sign of its former presence there destroyed, wonder filled the highway and the curiosity of neighbors and friends passed all bounds but no explanation were volunteered then or ever. People might query and peer, but they learned nothing. 
What was left open to view told no tales beyond the old one, and as for the single window, which was the sole opening into the shut-off space, it was then, as now, so completely blocked off by a network of closely impacted vines, that it offered little more encouragement than the wall itself to the eyes of the curiosity-mongers, as crept in by way of the hedgerows to steal a look at the hut, and if possible gain a glimpse of an interior which had suddenly acquired, by the very means taken to shut it off from every human eye, a new importance pointing very decidedly toward the tragic. But soon even this semblance of interest died out, or was confined to the strange tales whispered under breath on weird nights at neighboring firesides, and the old neglect prevailed once more. The whole place, new brick, old stone, seemed doomed to a common fate under the hand of time, when the present Philo Ocampa, succeeding to the property, brought new wealth and business enterprise into the family, and the old house on the hill was replaced by the marble turrets of Homewood, and this hut, or rather the portion open to improvement, was restored to some sort of comfort and rechristened the bungalow. Was fate to be appeased by this effort at forgetfulness? No. In emulation of the long-abandoned portion so hopelessly cut off by that dividing wall, this brightly furnished adjunct to the great house had linked itself in the minds of men to a new mystery, the mystery which I had come there to solve, if wit and patience could do it, aided by my supposedly unshared knowledge of a fact connecting me with this family's history in a way it little dreamed of. Naturally, my first look was at the building itself. I have described its location in the room from which the child was lost. What I wanted to see now, after studying those chalk marks, was whether that partition which had been put in was as impassable as was supposed. The policeman on guard having strolled a few feet away, I approached the open doorway without hindrance, and at once took that close look I had promised myself, of the marks which I had observed scrawled broadly across the floor just inside the threshold. They were as interesting and as fully important as I had anticipated. Though nearly obliterated by the passing of policemen's feet across them, I was still enabled to read one word which appeared to me significant. If you will glance at the following reproduction of a snapshot which I took of this scrawl, you will see what I mean. The significant character was the sixteen. Taken with the U.S.T., there could be no doubt that the whole writing had been a record of the date on which the child had disappeared, August 16. This in itself was of small consequence, if the handwriting had not possessed those marked peculiarities which I believed belonged to one man, a man I had once known, a man of revered aspect, upright carriage and a strong distinguished mark like an old-time scar, running straight down between his eyebrows. This had been my thought when I first saw it. It was doubly so on seeing it again after the doubts expressed by Miss Graham of a threatening old man who possessed similar characteristics. Satisfied on this point, I turned my attention to what still more seriously occupied it, the three or four long rugs which hung from the ceiling across the whole wall at my left, 
evidently concealed the mysterious partition put up in Mr. Ocumpaugh's father's time, directly across this portion of the room. Was it a totally unbroken partition? I had been told so, but I never accept such assertions without a personal investigation. Casting a glance through the doorway, and seeing that it would take my dreaming friend, the policeman, some two or three minutes yet to find his way back to his post, I hastily lifted these rugs aside, one after the other, and took a look behind them. A stretch of Georgia pine, laid, as I readily discovered, by more than one rap of my knuckles, directly over the bricks it was intended to conceal, was visible under each, from end to end a plain partition with no indications of its having been tampered with since the alterations were first made. Dismissing from my mind one of those vague possibilities, which add such interest to the calling of a detective, I left the place, with my full thought concentrated on the definite clue I had received from the chalk marks. But I had not walked far before I met with a surprise, which possibly possessed a significance equal to any I had already observed, if only I could have fully understood it. On the path into which I now entered, I encountered again the figure of Mrs. Carew. Her face was turned full on mine, and she had evidently retraced her steps to have another instant's conversation with me. The next moment I was sure of this. Her eyes, always magnetic, shone with increased brightness as I advanced to meet her, and her manner, while grave, was that of a woman quite conscious of the effect she produced by her least word or action. "'I have returned to tell you,' she said, "'that I have more confidence in your efforts "'than in those of the police officers around here. "'If Gwendolen's fate is determined by anyone, "'it will be by you. "'So I want to be of aid to you if I can. "'Remember that. "'I may have said this to you before, "'but I wish to impress it upon you.' There was a flutter in her movements which astonished me. She was surveying me in a straightforward way, and I could not but feel the fire and force of her look. Happily she was no longer a young woman, or I might have misunderstood the disturbance which took place in my own breast, as I waited for the musical tones to cease. "'You are very good,' I rejoined. "'I need help, and I shall be only too glad to receive your assistance.' Yet I did question her, though I presently found myself walking toward the house at her side. She may not have expected me to presume so far. Certainly she showed no dissatisfaction, when, at a parting in the path, I took my leave of her, and turned my face in the direction of the gates. A strange, sweet woman, with a power quite apart from the physical charms, which usually affected men of my age but one not easily read nor parted from, unless one had an imperative errand, as I had. This errand was to meet and forestall the messenger-boy, whom I momentarily expected with the answer to my telegram. That an opportunity for gossip was likewise afforded by the motley group of men and boys drawn up near one of the gate-posts, gave an added interest to the event, which I was quite ready to appreciate. Approaching this group, I assimilated myself with it as speedily as possible, and, having some tact for this sort of thing, 
soon found myself the recipient of various gratuitous opinions as to the significance of the find which had offered such a problem both to the professional and the unprofessional detective two mismated shoes had gwendolen ocumpa by any chance worn such no or the ones mating them would have been found in her closet and this someone shouted had not been done only the one corresponding to the one fished up from the waters of the dock had come to light. The other, the one which the child must really have worn, was nowhere nearer being found than the child herself. What did it all mean? No one knew, but all attempted some sort of hazardous guess, which I was happy to see fell entirely short of the mark. There was not a word of the vindictive old man described by Miss Graham, till I myself introduced the topic. My reason, or rather my excuse, for introducing it was this. On the gatepost near me I had observed the remnants of a strip of paper, which had been pasted there, and afterward imperfectly torn off. It had an unsightly look, but I did not pay much attention to it, till some movement in the group forced me a little nearer to the post when I was surprised enough to see that this scrap of paper showed signs of words, and that these words gave evidence of being a date written in the very hand I now had no difficulty in recognizing as that of the old man uppermost in my mind, even if he were not the one whom Miss Graham had seen on the bridge. This date, strange to say, was the same significant one already noted on the floor of the bungalow, a fact which I felt merited an explanation if any one about me could give it. Waiting, therefore, for a lull in the remarks passing between the stablemen and other employees about the place, I drew the attention of the first man who would listen to the half-torn-off strip of paper on the post, and asked if that was the way the Ocumpas gave the notice of their entertainments. He started, then turned his back on me, that wasn't put there for entertainment, he growled. That was posted up there by someone who wanted to show off his writing. There don't seem to be no other reason. As the man who spoke these words had thereby proved himself a blockhead, I edged away from him as soon as possible, toward a very decent-looking fellow who appeared to have more brains than speech. Do you know who pasted that date upon the post? I inquired. He answered very directly, No, or I should have been laying for him long before this. Why, it is not only there you can see it. I found it pinned to the carriage cushions one day just as I was going to drive Mrs. Ocumpa out. Evidently I had struck upon the coachman. And not only that, one of the girls up at the house, one as I knows pretty well, tells me, I don't care who hears it now, that it was written across a card which was left at the door for Mrs. Ocumpa, and all in the same handwriting, which is not a common one, as you can see. This means something, seeing it was the date when our bad luck fell on us. He had noted that. You don't mean to say that these things were written and put about before the date you see on them. But I do. Would we have noticed since? But who are you, sir, if I may ask, one of them detective fellows? If so, I have a word to say. Find that child, or Mrs. Ocumpa's blood will be on your head. 
She'll not live till Mr. Ocumpaugh comes home unless she can show him his child. Wait, I called out, for he was turning away toward the stable. You know who wrote those slips? Not a bit of it. No one does. Not that anybody thinks much of them but me. The police must, I ventured. Maybe, but they don't say anything about it. Somehow it looks to me as if they were all at sea. Possibly they are, I remarked, letting him go as I caught sight of a small boy, coming up the road with several telegrams in his hand. Is one of those directed to Robert Trevitt? I asked, crowding up with the rest, as his small form was allowed to slip through the gate. Specs there is, he replied, looking them over and handing me one. I carried it to one side and hastily tore it open. It was, as I expected, from my partner, and read as follows. Man you want has just returned after two days' absence. Am on watch. Saw him just alight from buggy with what looked like a sleeping child in his arms. Closed and fastened front door after him. Safe for to-night. Did I allow my triumph to betray itself? I do not think so. The question which kept down my elation was this. Would I be the first man to get there? End of chapter 4